this is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hi listener, welcome along to episode 29 of A Small Voice Podcast. Uh, Thanks for joining me, it's good to have you along. Um, This week I chat with Tanya Habjuka and um, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, She's a a bit of a force of nature, is Tanya. Operates on about seven or eight cups of coffee a day and, you know, it kind of shows. She's, um, as she said herself, quite hyper, but only in the very best possible way and um, she's an absolute pleasure to um, chat with so very much uh, you know appreciate her joining me on the podcast um, she didn't have much time in London but um, she made time to um, come on a small voice so that'll be coming up let's do a little bit of photo news first though very quickly a few um, winners to announce the Deutsche Bors prize of course has been won by Trevor Paglen congratulations to him commiserations to the other people especially to Laura El Tantawe my former guest who you know I would have loved to have won, win, as would have other people, but, you know, I'm sure everyone had their favourites. What the hell? Good uh, good luck and congratulations to Trevor Paglum. A couple of other prizes, the BJP Breakthrough Awards have been out, announced. Um, so the winners of that, um, Jane McCulloch, Piotr Karpinski, Dara Soden and Simon Sapienza, uh, those are the four winners. Apologies for any dodgy pronunciations. Those uh, prizes went um, for both, um, you know, stories and single images. Um, go to the BJP website if you want to look up who won what. And there will be an exhibition of that work uh, in London at the Old Truman Brewery in E1 um, from Thursday, 23rd of June. So if you want to check out that, you can get down there and the details, as I say, are on the BJP's website. The Michael P. Smith grant for documentary photography has been won by Annie Flanagan. That's a $5,000 award and that was won for her series Deafening Sound, which is a story about rape culture in the US. So a a very worthy winner and an important story, I think. So good luck to her and congratulations. Um, The Sony World Photography Awards is now open for entries. That's a 2017 award. So if you want to put your work into that, it's worldphoto.org is the website. Have Have a look at that. Also, applications for the 2016 Firecracker Photographic Grant are now open. Uh, The Firecracker Photographic Grant is an annual award providing funding for a female photographer to aid with the completion of a documentary photographic project. So if you tick all those boxes, go to the Firecracker website and have a look at that. That's firecracker. Uh, with a hyphen between fireandcracker.org. Also here in London, Magnum Photos have got their 69th annual general meeting coming up. That's um, from the 23rd of June through to the 26th. And uh, they have a number of, a kind of public program which you can get involved with, involving book signings and all kinds of stuff. So if you are interested, have a look at that. You can find that on the Magnum website. Um, also, MiniClick here in uh, London have got a number of events, mainly focused around the Photographer's Gallery. Um, so they're always worth checking out. Have a look at miniclick.co.uk if you want to find out what's going on with them. So, as I said, my guest this week is Tanya Habjoka. Uh, she's an award-winning photographer, journalist and educator whose practice links social documentary, collaborative portraiture and participant observation and whose principal interests include gender, representations of otherness, dispossession and human rights with a particular concern for the ever-shifting socio-political dynamics in the Middle East. 
Tanya trained in journalism and anthropology and has an MA in global media with an emphasis on Middle East politics from the University of London's School of Oriental and African Studies, otherwise known as SOAS. She produces in-depth narratives that offer nuanced alternatives to mainstream media depictions of her subjects, exemplified by Occupied Pleasures, her project depicting the everyday lives of Palestinians on the West Bank and in Gaza. The work received support from the Magnum Foundation, achieved a second place World Press Photo Award in the Daily Life category in 2014, and was published as a book, Occupy Pleasures, by Photo Evidence in 2015. It was critically acclaimed and judged by numerous people as one of the best photo books of that year. Tanya's work has been exhibited worldwide, as in the collections of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, the Institut de Monde Arabe, and the Carnegie Museum of Art. Uh, she's a founding member of Roya, the all-female photography collective from the Middle East, which may not remain all-female forever, as she mentioned in the interview. So, as I said, I really enjoyed talking to Tanya. I hope you enjoy uh, the interview. Yeah, I think you're going to your alma mater, SOAS. What are you doing? You're going to do a talk? Uh, yeah, it's quite amazing uh, to return to SOAS, considering that in my time there... Uh, I was a bit of a wild child, so now to return to my alma mater with uh, with a book, uh, it feels pretty amazing. So I'll be giving. Uh, I'm, I'm on a panel uh, describing representations and misrepresentations of the Middle East, and also will be discussing my book, Occupied Pleasures. Okay. When were you there then? Uh, I studied from 2006 to 2007. I literally arrived. Uh, just a couple of months after covering for Bloomberg uh, Wires, uh, the, the war in Lebanon in, in 2006, mm, okay. and then went directly into a, a media degree. So it, it was a bit surreal yeah. initially. What made you do that? It was this period in my career where I feel I'd hit kind of a, a period of, let's say, professional stagnation. I didn't really know where I just felt like I was doing these sort of, uh, you know, small news stories and it wasn't very satisfying. And I just, uh, I actually felt at that point that I wanted to break away from the stories that I was actually, you know, earning my bread and butter. And I wanted to say something different, but I felt like I couldn't just say it. I couldn't deviate without having something behind me. So I theorized maybe if I if I had an MA would be a beginning of how to unpack it and approach it differently. Right, okay, yeah. So you were still committed to, to the photography, you just took a little detour into academia or whatever. What kind of wild child were you then? Oh, <laughs> the, the, the wild child that, you, that one is in London, one coming from the Middle East and suddenly uh, just this is just one beautiful, seductive city of possibilities. Right, so. right, okay. Let's go back and, and sort of fill in the blanks a bit. Um, your your dad's Jordanian, your mum's American, is that right? Yes, my father is of a, he's from a minority group uh, in the region. He's Circassian, they're originally from the Caucasus, but since Ottoman times, they've been down in the Middle East. So my father is Jordanian Circassian, and my mother is specifically Texan. We'd like to deviate. Yeah, okay. So what, they met in the States? Yeah, in the uh, early 70s, uh, aviation was huge uh, in, in the Middle East. It was like one of the new professions and one of the number one places to study to become a pilot was actually in Texas. So your dad's a pilot? He, he passed uh, early, but yeah, he was actually one of the first commercial pilots in Jordan. Oh really? Wow! And so what? So he flew uh, seven three sevens or whatever we want to. We call. we had one 
giant, beautiful, sexy uh, 747 jumbo jet. That was what he flew until uh, Jordan hit uh, an economic snafu and actually sold it to okay. uh, to So the they had Emirates. one plane. That, that well, they had a fleet, but they had one beautiful one 747. 747. And he got to fly it. That's awesome. Um, so, so you grew up where in the States? Yeah, I was born in Jordan and uh, due to said uh, aviation, uh, my father fell in love with a Lebanese stewardess. So <laughs> we left and went to Texas and I would come back in the summers. And then when I was an unwieldy teenager there, I was sent to live for a bit in Jordan. So okay. it's sort of a uh, in-between worlds kind of reality. Yeah. What was it like um, to be at school? Were you, were you? Did you feel like a bit of an outsider being at school in the states, or I guess you were half American, therefore, you know, you were able to to assimilate. But were you treated differently? Um, I think that I, I, I remember witnessing uh, racism in Texas. One really horrible incident when I was uh, a child involving the uh, N word. <laughs> I never forgot it, but I. Being of Circassian uh, parentage, uh, I didn't look terribly different, right. so I could sort of blend in. So no, I, I didn't have any. It was more about just my perception that I, I was never fully. Uh, how do I put it? I was never fully uh, in line with what I saw around me, like mm. be- from media representations, from discussions, even at a young age of Palestinians. It just felt simplistic and weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and when, when did the photography start? Uh, you could argue it started when my father gave me an, an oblong plastic Kodak camera from mm. one of his travels. And it was this, uh, I don't even know what it would be called now, but I used to uh, throw Barbies from the second story and take pictures of Barbie falling down. Um, so That's th- creative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, so it's, you know, the interest started early, but as a serious profession, uh, not until I got an internship in uni in Texas. Okay. So you did a degree in Texas. Yeah. I studied cultural anthropology with a minor in photography. And then at some point the photography sort of took off as it were. What, what was it that, you know, what, what struck you about it? What was it that was appealing? Do you think? It's interesting because, uh, I remember Gary Knight once said I took a workshop with him years ago and uh, I remember him saying that he didn't see himself as a photographer but as a storyteller and it resonated with me at the time but not as much as it does now now I really on another level get what he's saying I I actually was a I began as a writer I had a job writing the Jordan Times that was one of my first uh, gigs and I never imagined that photography would become the thing but it was actually just I had initially breaks but are breaks getting into jobs and photography and then you know once you start the investments mm, you start mm. you know buying the, the gear and then I just started feeling stories more in that sense wanting to tell them visually but uh, increasingly now I'm mixing mediums and mixing approaches and I actually think I approach my stories almost like a writer yeah I think I mean I think there is I think people are into sort of documentary and, and photojournalism I think increasingly would would think of themselves as as storytellers or, or being interested in telling stories, you know, and just happening happening to use the medium of photography, you know, by doing that. But you know, there's also now the option to go different routes and use, um, you know, what they multimedia, which you know is is as I've said before, is quite f- funny because um, that was a, a kind of old fashioned 
term for quite a long time and now it's become kind of you know fresh again and um oh has it resurrected what i think so yeah i think so i mean when i when i studied um media production you know it was it, i don't know it's a point at which it just seemed a bit archaic but now because it, it kind of means something different all over again so i don't know but yeah i think it, now people are obviously looking into video and and whatever is the best means of telling the story. It seems, I mean, there's there's things happening. Uh, there was a huge forum on immersive storytelling, immersive journalism uh, with Magnum Foundation and Brown recently. I wish I'd seen that, but uh, it seems now a lot of people, and I'm working on a project, I can't talk about it secret still with a group, mm. but uh, there's a creation of an app. So it seems apps, storytelling platforms. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I don't even know where it's going. I mean, so there's so, yeah, there's, I think, you know, I think you, you're talking about, um, what was that project you referred to before we turned the mics on about um, the guy who went a Pan, Pan America or Pan... Uh, oh, via Pan Am. Via Pan Am, yeah. Kadir from Kadir, Noor. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, using you know social media to sort of, you know, get a bit of kind of heat under it and, 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 and making it more interactive and getting the, the people who are kind of actually looking at the images to sort of be more part of the project, I suppose you could say, in a way. And I think a lot of people are doing that. Well, that, I mean, there's so much saturation of, I mean, how, how, how many uh, lens culture, I mean, how many endless photo essays can we access now and how much, you know, BuzzFeed, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, so I, I think definitely making a story, making it more compelling, making a, a fresh presentation, uh, there's mm. a lot to be said for that. There's a need right yeah. now. Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't really realize, but you, you it sounds like you ca- you went um, from a, a a fairly kind of conventional photojournalistic background that you started working for what newspapers and magazines. Uh, other than let's see, I was always freelance. I yeah. mean, I would take like you know maybe six week assignments, etc. But um, I I never was part of like a you know staff of New York Times or staff of you know n- nothing like that. So no, right. But it was it was that was your background rather than you know coming from some other direction you know or doing your own projects and not even really having that that sort of foundation. Yeah, it, it, it initially. But what's funny is I I don't even really refer to any of that work as my work. Like mm. that was the thing that was just so I was just incredibly dissatisfied. So I was always quietly pursuing uh, projects and not really doing anything with them and just trying to survive bread and butter and then I just realized that I could not if 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 I was working on private projects personal projects 20% of the time and the rest I was pursuing work that I just innately found you know despite my best best efforts boring mm. uh the approach then I I I would have changed careers entirely right yeah so what, after you've done your MA here in London what what happened then well, there was a stroke of bad luck, actually. I had uh, London financially definitely wore me down. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, after a break, uh, I was nervous. I needed to get back to the Middle East. But at the same time, you know, I hadn't been working for a year. I took, you know, the odd assignment here in London, you know, photographing cocktails and whatnot. But mm. uh, I had just enough money to decide, do I go back to the Middle East, but without all of the, you know, gear and things that I need and I'm, you know, a viable uh, financial cushion or do I go to the US and haven't been there in a long time and make, make a lot of money and get mm. new equipment and then boom, the the economic crash happened literally right as I arrived. And uh, uh, I mean, I got to photograph a few political campaigns. Uh, that was when Obama first ran. I got to do some election stuff, but it was not enough to make any money. And I felt just, I felt trapped. I was like, I was not intending on staying in this 
cycle mm. and I actually probably one of the darkest career moments took uh took work in a in a baby photography photo, uh, photographing studio you know that was that was right. dramatic yeah I can imagine but I think what's interesting is that well I presume you then decided to you know probably best to try the Middle East right you you were probably conflicted as to you know you had to decide well I could go to the States or I could go to well, well that was the thing my contacts my passion what what I had just spent a, a year writing with my dissertation my ideas and passions were all there the story I wanted to tell was there right. so I just didn't you know I hadn't lived in the US in, in ages and I didn't you know, so I, uh, although now I'm actually a bit fatigued on the Middle East and there's so many stories I would love to do in the US, but, but to get back, I still, I didn't have enough money and I'd already experienced what it was like to be a freelancer and with not enough money covering the war in Lebanon. And I remember I vowed at that point, I will never cover another conflict like this without a financial cushion so that I can deviate and tell the story that I want. I don't want to work for, on someone else's agenda yeah. or edit if you will, I want to say something. And so I took a job um, in Iraq doing political communications or let's say communications for one of the myriad of USAID projects popping up to to help the the occupation. Mm. And so the money was phenomenal, but that was hard because you were living in this teeny compound and it was this bizarre reality where the the Iraqi guards were on the most dangerous outpost. They were the most expendable. Then there were the uh, black South Africans and Angolans, and they were the next. And then you had the sort of gods, the demigods, were the the, the white South Africans who would wear short shorts and jog. And it was, this, and then you had just uh, what did we call them? We had the missionary three M's: missionaries, misfits, and oh, I can't remember. We had it down to it. But anyway, it was a bizarre reality. But I couldn't. They knew I was a photographer, and they watched me. I wasn't allowed to document right. any of that. But I used that as a cushion to get out of debt from my MA and get the gear that I needed and jump back into what I wanted to do. So what took you to Palestine? I mean, I know you, you did the Gaza, you did the Women of Gaza as, as one of your stories, which sort of in, in the end, I guess, led you into Occupied Pleasures, which we're going to get onto. But um, yeah, how did you end up going to Palestine? Yeah, um, growing up, it was, it, Palestine was always, you know, I'm not, I'm not Palestinian. I'm actually not even of Arab uh, parentage, but I just in Jordan, Palestine is such a part of the, of the narrative. You mm. can't move, you know, five five feet without meeting a Palestinian. And uh, I always grew up knowing Palestinian neighbors, Palestinian, Palestinian elderly would, you know, tell tell me their stories. And I researched, and I and the lived reality was always very different. Palestine, you know, it's it's inordinately high. Uh, priority in the media if we mm. compare it to other stories so mm. it was always there and it was always jarring and so I I followed it over the years and in my as I studied anthropology I tried to sort of understand and my anthropological approach was always with the narrative encounter narratives and uh, the intrigue was there but I never if you'd asked me in in you know, my uni days are you going to live in palestine and marry a palestinian and have children god no that was never mm. something i would have entertained but um it it's uh it was you know once i finished this project uh once i finished this period in iraq in this bizarre horrible <laughs> compound uh i wanted to t- pursue a personal project yeah, and course. there were three options at that point i was either going to go to afghanistan and 
approach uh, document th that reality, but from my own approach, uh, or I was going to go and uh, I was going to go, what was it? it was, I was interested in something in Kashmiri rebels, or I was going to, because I'd bet someone who could have, I didn't at that time, I hadn't invested research yet, but I was interested, like maybe I'll go that direction, or maybe I'll go to Gaza because, you know, the, the Operation Cast Lead had just happened. And what I found fascinating was just because it was such a horrific event. And I had just covered not that long ago the, the, the Lebanon war. And I'd seen the devastation of very similar military. And people at least could flee. But I understood that in Gaza they couldn't. And so I was just unnerved. And I, I wanted to go and see. And then at that same time, media started this like uh, approach. Because there, there is a copycat element, you know, and... and what irritates me sometimes is freelancers will go and do the same story that's already been done, which is sort of counterintuitive. But mm. suddenly it became the story about uh, women losing their rights under Hamas. And mm. I was like, well, you know, I'm no fan of Hamas, but this is peculiar that that's what the story is right now. So I decided to go and kind of unpack it. Right. So that, that was the sort of default narrative that, that was going on in the media at the time kind of thing. Everyone had sort of somehow jumped on that particular story yeah it's it's funny how that happens it's, there's a kind of lack of imagination going on somehow and I, I think especially you know covering that particular you know the the the, the israeli-palestine conflict um you know those f very familiar images that we've all seen over the years and some of us frankly have contributed to i've got to tell you now tanya <laughs> but you know um but yeah, um, so you, how did it how did it all come about? Was it the the women of Gaza that that was your sort of first first thing that you did there? The the women of Gaza was my first uh, move back into photography after taking this long deviation that was not supposed to last as long as it did. I mean, it was what, almost three years away from photography, mm. and just as I was like, just as I had figured out how I wanted to do it and the approach I wanted to take, and then it was snared away from me mm. so um that was the, the first personal project that i got back to but, uh, i mean ultimately do you do you look back and think that that three years away in somehow was a good thing or you know helped it or you know put you on on a certain path that you might not have gone on i think uh, yeah definitely i mean for one thing it 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 showed me how much I loved, you know, it was, it was a compulsion. It's, it's, it's something you, you're certainly not doing it for financial reasons. <laughs> um, so it, it showed me how much I had a lot of time to think about what, if, if I weren't sitting in this compound surrounded by this bizarre reality of, you know, white South Africans in short shorts jogging, um, what would I be doing? Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, it, I, you know, I researched a lot. I read a lot. I looked at work that I, that I wanted to, to learn from. And so, yeah, it, it was hard, but I think it definitely played a role. And SOAS uh, is an interesting place. I, I discovered a little too late that the place for me probably would have been Goldsmiths. Okay, right. That would have been the right fit because SOAS was, I, I think media, if you stay within the realms of pure theory without a practical component, it can be a little, excuse the term, masturbatory, mm. a bit circular. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And that was frustrating to me at times, but I also think it did help me later, you know, when I when I looked at a story and thought, okay, what else is going on here and how can I play with this narrative differently? How can I approach it? Mm. So, Yeah, and that's, that's really kind of what what you did with, with Occupied Pleasures, isn't it? Um, how did it all sort of start to formulate in your mind then that you would, you know, this was going to become... 
a project. I think you you said that the title was the sort of in a way was a kind of aha moment to it. The, the, you know that took you in. How tell me about that? Uh, it was the yeah. This was a slow inspiration project where the little pieces were coming and and you know when you have not just in, in I think in, in photography but uh, almost in the way you can move through life when when you feel something in your gut. Mm. You know, there's there's usually something going on there. So I just kept having these gut reactions to, and I was sort of formulating, but I didn't know what it was. And uh, I've, I've said the story a, a lot on online. Um, it was a conversation through Woman of Gaza that inadvertently opened the path. Mm. And then, uh, sh- you know, after leaving Gaza, I ended up literally right after I left meeting the man who became my husband and, and living almost immediately, <laughs> uh, settling myself in Jerusalem. And... Um, so once you once I had to get married and go through the bureaucracy, I suddenly became, I suddenly started to go to the same institutions that Palestinians had to go through right. to get their their paperwork to get to do anything, birth, whatever it is. There's this bizarre, Kafkaesque reality to mm. do it, and so suddenly I was going through, and I'm sitting in these institutions, and I'm watching, or I'm sitting at checkpoints, and so suddenly it became not just an approach of I'm I'm I'm. You know, driving through and documenting, but it became quite personal. Yeah, you were on the inside all of a sudden. You know, inadvertently, you'd become part of the thing that you otherwise would have been for on the outside, sort of looking into. Yeah, exactly. And and so slowly, 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 there started to be more of these. You know, in, invariably, when you're sitting in these uh, moments, there's these sort of highlights. There'll be somebody who sort of breaks away and pushes forward, and uh, and then that's when when the title came into play. But still, it was not, when you're covering the Middle East, you want to be careful, you don't want to be glib, you don't want to, you know, it's so, mm. and so I was a bit insecure about it. Yeah. Um, but you said some people reacted quite badly about it. It was almost as if that, you know, you were focusing on daily life or, or focusing on, on you know, finding small pleasures in, in, in everyday life was was somehow... But trying to put a spin on on the plight of the Palestinians that you know that you shouldn't be do, shouldn't be trying to put on was that true? Um, I think no. I that that was the case. Only one or two people had a negative. Okay. Uh, in general, it, it was it was amazingly positive. People were almost surprised. They're like, oh, because you know you saw them being well, you know, prepared makes, to go into the same you yeah know, political yeah. and suddenly and, they're the, it, you know they've kind of you know sort of brought up short thinking oh so this person's got an entirely different take but, on but I thing. certainly had to explain I had to explain yeah. who I was I had to show them previous work and approaches I mean certainly there was caution mm. because it's there is a lot of agendas of course and a lot yeah of, and uh, in general people really enjoyed it. it became almost a collaborative process of you know in the portrait sessions when it was a, a portrait situation so mm. it, it was primarily it, it was positive but but i will say uh in terms of resources and photographers i don't i don't think you should go one should go to every perpignan or every but when you have the beginning of a project that you really, or when you have something to show, it is worth going. And it was actually in one of these moments that someone sort of pushed me forward to really, really take a gamble on it. And um, it was, uh, he, he was the former bureau chief uh, uh, for the AP and he was sitting and I, I did a portfolio review and I showed him all of my work and some some of them were the quirky quirky deviations and some of them were the longer term projects but then it was just this i think i had like seven images in the title occupied pleasures and it was this i had it at the very back shoved and he stopped there and he said this 
this is it. <laughs> this is what you should be doing. Focus on this. And that sort of, you know, pushed me forward, pushed the confidence that, okay, okay, mm. take, take a gamble on this, put, invest more time in this. And also, uh, uh, listen to other photographers, because I assume you have photographers who listen, uh, young photographers as well. Uh, I would not be too precious or arrogant and assume that someone maybe at a, at a, at a side table might not have something to say. It was mm. actually that same Perpignan where I went to a section that was more geared towards the uh, emerging photographer, you know, the young, the okay. young beginner, and they would review your work, and then if they liked it, they would hang one on the wall. So. Most of the crew that I was with were like, I'm not doing that. Mm. But I, I yeah, saw on, you, the, on the name, I saw an, an editor that I knew her work from the Civil War in Lebanon and mm. loved. So I sat down with her. She, she loved Occupied pleasure, Pleasures. She uh, printed one and put it on the wall. And I thought that would be that. I get contacted by her months later. And she once I won the Magnum Foundation grant, and she said, I'm the one who, mm. who nominated you. I mean, that's a great exercise in humility, I think, isn't it? You, you, you demonstrated um, uh, great humility there and, and, you know, you kind of reap the benefits of doing that. I mean, I think it is, it is a difficult situation sometimes because at the same time, you know, those, those portfolio views, I'm sure they can be incredibly helpful, I think. But also there's that thing of not putting too much value on any one person's opinion, you know. And, and equally, I think you could be, you, could be um, uh, you know, you could be put off doing something because someone says that they don't like it or they don't get it or whatever and and then you know the next person could get it completely so it's like well how you know what are you going to do you're going to listen to one person and not the other and if so didn't you know you've got to follow as you said i think you've got to follow your, your gut instincts but you must have something inside of you must have known actually deep down that that was actually the thing you needed to to, to pursue that, that's it it was something that inside my I, I, I hate to sound poetic here but inside my heart that's yeah. what I wanted to be doing and I just needed a little push I mean certainly not anyone else in those portfolio reviews commented on that work but right. it was also a matter of I sought out someone who knew the Middle East and right. who I knew his his work when he was a photojournalist and I so it's a matter of going to people as well who you suspect would get what you're saying yeah, and also yeah. not constantly going to these things. You don't just want to, And I see a lot of photographers doing that. Every potential they go and mm. man, just get busy and start making work. Yeah, keep shooting. Just keep <laughs> shooting. If you're showing your photo to someone, ask yourself why you're not actually shooting pictures. Um, and so, yeah, you've got the Magnum Foundation um, thing. Um, which I think is the correct way to refer to it, um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that 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 kind of uh, they, I guess they fund it to some extent. Do they give you a bit of money to go and do more of it? Were you living where you were living in East Jerusalem at that point? Exactly. Right. So, but, so you but, were traveling to Gaza. But that's it, though. I mean, uh, I'm doing a project right now in the Galilee, which is almost it. So, so even though it's not a very large country, uh, just the amount of resources and energies it takes, you're going to totally disparate mm. realities and getting into Gaza certainly uh, can be financially cumbersome. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I think there, there was a, one of the pictures that sort of comes to mind was um, a lady in one of the tunnel. How did the tunnel thing come into it? I guess you would, you were aware of that. And I guess not everyone will be, will know, but there's, there's this kind of network, amazing network of, of tunnels, which um, the, the people of Gaza have kind of dug, um, which go into Egypt, I guess, off, over the, uh, across the border. It's a kind of resourceful um, way of, you know, kind of uh, solving um, the, the logistical problems of moving about. Um, what took you into, how did you get access to those places, first of all? Um, 
certainly from uh, from the period of the of the siege on on Gaza, the tunnel economy emerged as one of a very viable and important network of, of survival and uh, certainly merchandise. So I think any journalist, you know, you would go to Gaza, you would in you know invariably you would you would at some point do that story. And and when I did the woman in Gaza uh, series in two thousand nine, the tunnels that I was given access to anyway. Um, Certainly there were larger ones because they were also bringing in cars, but in general, the majority of the tunnels were quite small. You would go down in this little rope, mm. down, literally down into a hole until you got to something. And, uh, yeah, it was a bit like the Great Escape or something. <laughs> now they're, the, they're kind of, kind of five-star luxury tunnels, well, really, aren't they? But, well, now they've, there's, they've uh, devolved into something else. But oh, So right. at that time, you would, and so you would go down, and I, I'm quite claustrophobic, and also they wouldn't let me go too far, but you had these teens, these young boys working, and they made better money doing that than anything else, and they right. were taking tram at all they were taking this uh drug to sort of calm them so they were all sort of daisy because they were spending hours and hours and if and if the israelis uh as as they were wont to do would occasionally fly over and uh the air force and and, and bomb the tunnels mm. and so it was, it was a great danger so these kids were, were super nervous but then when i went back and again when i first unpacked the the woman of gaza series getting access to all society through the woman it was uh, it was a different reality. Hamas was not the main. People were shell shocked from what had just happened in, in uh, Operation Cast Lead. But when I went back in 2013, Hamas was playing a very different role, mm. and they were very invasive in the personal lives of people. And it was a very depressing, depressing place. And the, the tunnels to gain access at that time, I had to. It took days of permission. You know, sitting and drinking tea with Hamas officials. I hired a fixer. And all of that, and I had a, you know, I was pregnant. I had a, a two-year-old back back in Jerusalem that I needed to get to. You know, time was of the essence. I've got the stress of this. Okay, I, I want to do a good job with this grant, and I'd spent you know three days of logistics, and then once I got there, they were like, right, twenty minutes. <laughs> all right. Yeah. What? Nice. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, and so, but I was surprised to see it become more institutionalized, and yeah, you could walk through and. Uh, I'm standing there as far as they would allow me in the darkness and there's you know, lights, uh, makeshift lights on the sides. And I thought I was totally screwed, mm. really. And then this woman walked through very blasé, very casual. And she's got this bouquet of flowers. It's this very special uh, Gazan style, uh, style uh, bouquet. And so there she was walking. And I was so surprised that I almost didn't Missed take the it. picture. Yeah. I was just like, uh, so I snapped it. And I was like, where, where, where are you going? And she said, oh, wedding party in Egypt so casual mm. and and for me that that picture is one of the uh, most telling of the series because it it for her it was that had become totally normal almost mm. like her airport just walking yeah. through a tunnel yeah absolutely so and what was your sort of internal narrative as all that happened because you must have been you must have thought thank you know like that was I thought that was going to go go nowhere and suddenly you got you got that wonderful um picture just cut you know it came out of nowhere as it were it's funny it's funny how you know you know when you have a good photo it's that feeling that you get you know when you got it but then at the same time uh maybe people have a different approach but when you get that euphoric I got it yeah you know sometimes you're afraid to look yeah oh, yeah, yeah yeah screwed something up you know? yeah I think so, yeah, I think you were at a thirtieth of a second. So if I'd taken that, it would have been totally out of focus. But it's, you know, you well, n- I, I you nailed had plenty it. of time just to <laughs> obsessively play with the light yeah. before. 
That was great. Um, I guess the the other one that I mean, there's there's lo- loads of wonderful moments. Um, there's stuff at the zoo, and and you know, so there's so many great single images. But um, the one that I guess you also forgive me for making you go over it again, but you've got to tell us about the guy with the sheep because it is a it's a you know it's a great picture, and I think it's quite a nice story as well. So there's one of a guy in a car, um, casually sitting next to a sheep. How did that one come about? It's funny because I've been playing a lot with this idea of um, collaborative storytelling and collaborative portraiture, which seems in the documentary field there's been, uh, you know, people are closing ranks and what is staged and what is not staged. And I certainly uh, am not a proponent of staging, but I think when you're taking a portrait, it's always a degree of collaboration. And it just depends on how vibrant the conversation is am mm. i my just coming with my agenda and i'm setting you are are you a part of it i mean do i have know you better than you are like i i think i think there's something to be said for the conversation and and and, and to get access to this project it required a lot of conversation and so this this kid uh i say kid he was like 22 but um he I met him early on, uh, and he's from one of the outlining uh, villages outside of Ramallah. And he was just, you know when you meet someone who's just a character, they're just mm. so vibrant and goofy and warm. And and I knew he was a walking uh, portrait, but it just, I was never in the right situation with him. So I sort of, again, going on gut. This whole, I, I, increasingly, that's how I'm approaching everything in my storytelling is gut instinct and research, research, research. Mm. But um, I, I called him sporadically. What are you up to? What are you up to? And by chance, it was purely by chance, I called him on the last day of Ramadan. I said, hey, what are you up to today? And he said, uh, oh, I got to go buy a sheep, you know, for upcoming Eid. I just want to get out of the way. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> oh, man, can I, can I come? And he said, yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, I live the other side of the wall. At that time, I lived uh, uh, in East Jerusalem in Beit Hanina, which is sort of the last, middle-class neighborhood that's surviving in East Jerusalem, a Palestinian neighborhood. And uh, it should have been like a 10-minute, 15-minute drive. But in general, you have to cross this, you have to ha- cross the Kalandia, very imposing Kalandia checkpoint, which makes it a bottleneck situation, on top of which it was the last day of Ramadan and mm. everyone was jonesing for their cigarette, for the last meal, you know, so it was just chaos, sheer chaos. And desperate, I, I called him, I kept checking in with him, I'm almost there, I'm almost there, which I wasn't. And then finally he said, uh, listen, I've got to go get the sheep. And I said, okay, but can you, once you have the sheep, do you think you could just wait for me there just as long as you can and maybe I'll make it by then? And literally, uh, he, he was very kind, he obliged and he was waiting. And suddenly, Kalandia, sort of like the New York Times Square in terms of you never see it empty, you mm. know, except for in very certain film scenes, which mm. God knows how they orchestrated it. It was it was it was empty and quiet and um and i i i ran up to him because the time was you know the, the the light had almost completely disappeared and i i could see the sheep in the car and he saw me and without just on his own as i was approaching the car he he pulls the sheep who was in the back and pulls uh, her to the front beside him because the thing was is all along in the conversations I was showing him the work that I was doing I was t- explaining like this is this is the story that I'm telling uh, of the Palestinian occupation so it was his playfulness mm. he pulled the sheep in the, in the front you know as I approached and then there she was 
Uh, and actually, I, I had a brief conversation with him. I didn't want to be rude and just shove the camera, but I'm also like stressing. I'm like, oh God, the light's almost gone. And so I'm like, hey, hey, how are you? And who, who's this? You know, we made a joke. And he said, oh, well, this was uh, Haifa Wahbi. She's a sexy Lebanese pop star. But then I discovered it's a man, so it's Morsi. <laughs> and so uh, right at that moment, he was sitting in the car and, and the light was almost gone. And so I looked and I had one super inexpensive external uh, light. So you you lit it from inside the car. Yeah, 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 because there was no way to get at this point it was it was going too too flat. Mm-hmm. And so I had one external light and I debated. I'm like, okay, man sheep, man sheep, fuck it, I don't know. <laughs> Threw it in the middle. <laughs> yeah. And at that that in itself would have been a good photograph. But at that moment that is when he he gave me gold. Him being this this jovial joker, he he lit the cigarette and mm. turned to the sheep. <laughs> that was yeah. all him, and it yeah. was a beautiful. And I was just like, "Thank you." But Thank absolutely, you. everything came together, and uh, the light was. It, it looks like it's been. I mean, the lighting was. You know, worked out perfectly. Um, but you know, this thing about the humor, I guess, it comes up, and and you know, is there some way of kind of characterizing the Palestinian sense of humor? Yeah, um, you know, humor in, in in the Middle East. I mean, certainly there's a uh, there's a renowned black Jewish humor. Humor is prevalent within the the Jewish narrative. Yeah, um, hugely. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing is it intense uh, pain and an intense humor. They seem to go hand in hand, and yeah. so certainly that's the case uh, within not not just the Palestinian narrative. I mean, Iraqis have some of the blackest humor I've ever encountered. It's almost the more dire the situation is, the more cryptically funny. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I mean, that's the thing. It's like you, I, I, I mean, if you just go to my Facebook statuses, anytime I have a particularly heinous experience at the airport, I love putting it into a humorous prose. Yeah. I mean, that's how you kind of, you know, and Process I mean, it. that's, I mean, like, I, I remember once I was sitting at a checkpoint at Calandia, actually, and just sitting and unmoving. And there was this uh, watchtower and this sort of uh, omniscient, you know, you heard that you hear this voice screaming out, uh, uh, screaming in in, in uh, uh, Hebrew accented uh, Arabic you know, barking orders, and this one old woman didn't know where to go, and she was walking, I guess, where the cars were, and so this uh, loudspeaker, you hear this, and it's so aggressive, and you're just always watching these, and so you're sitting and you're just feeling like crap, and then right at that moment. This little boy who it seemed was actually not related to her. I don't know what prompted him, but he just wanted to defend her. It was this little little seven-year-old knight. He ran up because she just looked dejected and turned and walked away. And this little seven-year-old comes running up. And he's got his, I don't, this is one of those moments where you wish you had your camera. But then actually, I don't think, I don't think a picture would have said it. It really mm. needed to be a video. But this little kid just you know, had his fists and he just stood there defiantly looking up. You can't, you certainly can't see who's, who's barking these orders. But he just looked up at this giant watchtower and he just stuck his tongue out and he stood there frozen. <laughs> and then suddenly the voice became, let and he just refused to move and so it was just this glorious so, so you see what i mean it's yeah. just that's how you function yeah yeah absolutely and and in a way you know I, it's funny because by focusing on um a completely different narrative in a way you're kind of drawing attention to it i i feel was that your intention absolutely right well that worked for me um yeah you know you it, it makes one think of you know the other side of things without with actually out without seeing that you know especially when there's a caption which might casually remind us of you know the reality that they're facing so that's yeah i found that was that was really interesting did you do you feel that that worked successfully 
I I was quite happy um, with with how it turned out. I, w- I was nervous as hell when it was first released because it could have gone completely tits up. I mean, if how it was handled. That's the thing is the Israeli and Palestinian story. It's not easy to deviate from the stereotypes when you tell that you're not allowed to. In the sense of it's not that it's not easy. If you're a good storyteller, you can. But it's a it's a closed narrative in terms of how many Western outlets certainly easier in England, certainly easier in Europe than it is in the US. But so I needed to think of a creative way mm. to sort of, as we say in Arabic, from underneath, underneath, I needed to find a new way of approaching the story and, and reminding people of the narrative of, yes, it's, it is directly about occupation. It's a, it's a political project, absolutely. And I, maybe so as a theory, you know, unpacking and deconstructing, maybe it proved helpful yeah. in, the, in the end. <laughs> maybe it came into play. You did a Kickstarter campaign to actually kind of fund the book it was just completely hit out of the park you got almost double what you were asking for i think ultimately near not quite not quite although uh something odd happened with the campaign and i lost the last 10 hours kickstarter went offline so i probably Uh, would have more than doubled but it was it was by most standards it was a pretty amazing uh result Um, i I hit my goal in i think the first week amazing yeah. and what was fascinating is you get when you do that was my first and and so far only uh kickstarter campaign um but you get this breakdown at the end of it and they show you like where were you most successful where did the money directly come from Twitter, Facebook, etc. And for a lot of people, when I researched how to do an effective campaign, most people said Twitter is your friend, but actually almost 70% of uh, my outreach was successful through Facebook. Interesting. And you also can, unless they donated anonymously, which was not the case in, in general, but uh, some of the people who donated were not the usual suspects. You know, it would be like a yoga teacher in Ohio. Mm. I mean, really random and amazing. Yeah. And, and just to circle back to your other question, um, when I, I released it initially on Lynn's blog with Jim Estrin, who is you probably know is a, is a very important person in the industry, and we he yeah, he writes a lot about about um, f- photography. Um, the uh, Lynn's blog, New York Times Lynn's yeah. blog, is yeah. him uh, and his colleague's baby, and he we did like three long long skype interviews and he actually called and did some fact checking and we were both very nervous because we understood that this could blow up for either of us you know we could be accused of a b c d and my biggest fear was because at the end of the day you develop a trust but i mean once the story is out and your Mm. hands you know you take out one word you uh, take a line of a caption out and everything and i was terrified my biggest fear was that I it would have trivialized the very serious reality of the occupation. And I just, until it, and then when it was released, and I was very happy with how he handled it. Mm. And uh, and in general, I, I didn't get, uh, I, I had beautiful response. A lot of Palestinians in diaspora, I would get emails, sometimes just one word, thank you. Thank you for letting us see ourselves as we are. You know, very, it was very positive. And I actually didn't get a lot of negative trolling. But the Kickstarter campaign, for whatever reason, once they profiled it on Yahoo News, so maybe mm. there's something tied to who reads Yahoo News, and right. I suddenly started getting a lot of, like, uh, wake up in the morning and I would get a see you next Tuesday, if you get what I'm saying, mm. you, um, blah, 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 and I got a hurl of abuse. And what was the the objection that you'd kind of dared to um, portray Palestinians, you know, in their normal life? Or what? I can't really well, understand. Well, for those what trolls who who cared to sort of go further into detail, it would be, 
you stupid bitch. <laughs> yeah. You don't understand anything. Right. So it's just a kind of generic yeah troll trolly kind of well, there's, no, there's no there's no substance or, or or kind of logic behind any of it but then there's i guess that is in the nature of of trolling it's just people's pissed off people being angry and taking it out well, on i think trolling in general that is the case but i think the israeli palestinian it's a very watched and there's like you could lose your career over mm. covering you know a, a comment a miscomment a misstep so it's very unnerving and Actually, for that reason, I actually don't use Twitter a lot. Yeah, no, it is a real minefield, isn't it? I mean, it's just uh, you know, emotions run so high, and and it's such a divisive um, issue um, for so many people. And you know, as as um, you know, we had that thing recently. Um, Ken Livingston, who's um, a well-known politician in this country, um, and had a very long career in politics. He was the used to be mayor, and he made the uh, you know fundamental mistake of. Um, uh, well, really, it was it was an issue of um, it was an issue of um, you know anti-Zionism is not the same thing as anti-Semitism, basically, um, which I personally think is is an inarguable fact. But um, that can get very messy that debate, you know, and it did for him, and he made the mistake of of um, you know invoking the name of of Hitler, you oh, know, no. which in that context, let's face it, you know, if you're an experienced politician, you know, you just don't be. He's you know it was it was a dumb clumsy thing to do, and he paid the price, you know. I think he's yeah i think he's toast now as far as he lost his job essentially i don't even know if he had a job anymore but you know he's one of those people who's always been on the on the kind of political scene in this country and um yeah it was a shitstorm you know a real shitstorm but i digress it's well but you know it's it's that's the thing is that a downside is as i certainly with the success of this project uh there's a few things you struggle with one am i going to do another project that is as well received i remember uh, an editor from uh, national geographic asked me to send a, oh i see you're working on this can you send me an edit and i did she goes oh well but it's not like occupied pleasures and i'm like well crap of course it's not that took five years yeah. this is like a couple of months right, right. um but uh, th- so there's that. But there's also you don't want to be pigeonholed. Like I don't want to be seen as an uh, advocacy journalist. And so mm. I, I'm really I, I'm very pleased when I get assignments like uh, Le Monde. Just I I work a lot with them. And recently I got to do um, uh, a photo essay with a, gr- a great uh, Pietra, fabulous journalist based in in, in Jerusalem. And it was on uh, American settlers in the West Bank. And you know, other journalists would probably think twice about bringing a, a Jordanian married to a Palestinian photographer into that situation. But uh, he, he brought me along, mm. and I actually ended up getting. I'd like to be as honest as I can when there were, you know, maybe I'll be vague on certain points because I don't want to make them uncomfortable. But I'm as honest as I can in these situations, and I ended up having a fascinating access to actually one of the hilltop, which is the most. Uh, at times, uh, you, you could argue the violent resistance to any form of uh, regulation. And uh, I, I got access. They, they literally left me alone to just meander across the entire settlement past sunset and photograph. And it was that to me was one of the most exciting assignments mm. that I'd ever had because I was suddenly in, which maybe on a personal political level, I am not uh, pro settlement, but I am. And that mode I have my hat on as a journalist. So my role is to document and be as fairly representative as I can and provide the same degree of humanity when I'm photographing and presenting them. So it was like, you know, 
it's it's about your approach and my approach I always think more of an as an anthropologist I mean there was this, there was this moment that this one little kid was playing with a machine gun and I already had put my gun my my gun <laughs> my my camera down and the father looked and said oh you're not going to photograph that I said of course not mm. I said I wouldn't do that to a Palestinian family because it would just be putting it's a kid playing with a gun but it would be taken out of context yeah, of course. but then it's the quiet ways that you can at the same time I'm being respectful then I was in the kitchen and it was this you know, typical you know, a suburban kitchen where you had you know, neatly the, the dishes were put on the side and there was a cute little you know, kitchen towel with the flowers. But you look through the window and there was this Palestinian uh, uh, village in the distance. So it's just, mm. but, but I love when I'm given a chance to, to, and actually right now I'm trying to get some funding to do, I want to photograph more inside Israel now. Yeah. Well, you're, you're in a kind of perfect position because you can, you can obviously... Um, you know, you assimil- assimilate, as it were, in both, you know, um, uh, you know, both sides of the of the equation, as it were. And um, yeah, I play. You know, it's 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 funny because I as, I as play a, my Texan when I need to play. Yeah, exactly. And I even put on a little bit of an accent if I need to. <laughs> I mean, as a journalist, you know, you're in a, you're, that's perfect, really, because you can, uh, you know, you get to see it from both sides of the equation. And um, you know, if you if you wish to, you can sh- shoot it from both sides. Yeah, you got you sound. Um, slightly American. Um, you don't, you know, you, you, it's, yeah, you're kind of like um, perfectly kind of. Uh, but kind but of gestures neutral. can give you away. Like right. I, was, I was with a really, in Hebron, which said that they can be some of the most intense, uh, politically frightening settlers. And I actually was, uh, I didn't realize that with the Orthodox, you don't shake hands. Rather right. similar to what, I didn't know that. And I, uh, when he didn't shake my hand, I just in it just went into the the usual. I, I tapped my chest, sort of with the Islamic greeting, <laughs> and he suddenly got tense. Uh, really? Where did you say you're from? I was like, uh. oh, oh. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, tricky, yeah. tricky. Right. Uh, so and in terms terms of your sort of income pie chart, what you know, what's what are you doing? You're doing uh, assignments for, like you said, you mentioned Le Monde. You're doing newspaper, magazine assignments. How how does that break down for you? You know, how how are you actually earning your living? In an ideal world, if things were fair, <laughs> yeah, which of course they're not. They're not. I, you know, uh, despite winning the World Press, I, I, I would like to say that uh, editorial assignments, which are the most exciting, what I love, are, you know, you know swimming down upon me. But uh, no, I, I, I get. Uh, because I mean, there's a lot of you have know, you have amazing AP, amazing wire shooters, so that you know they're not going to put the expense unless it's a very particular you know mm. feature story. So I don't actually make my bread and butter does not come from editorial, which is actually a great disappointment to me because that is what would make me very happy. Mm. Um, so I supplement my income uh, in white slave market. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I supplement my income uh, through NGO, you know, portraiture, NGO assignments, which there's a lot of. And I actually, uh, I work with Panos, mm. which I love. I love Panos in, in London. And uh, they have amazing access of network to assignments for various UN organizations. So right. I do assignments on, on the Syrian refugee crisis. But it's usually within a humanitarian uh, kind of assignment yeah are you a member of that organization sort of formally you're, you're with panos yes as it were. Yeah. yes okay. i joined last uh, september they announced it actually at perpignan and speaking of world press where where were you when you heard about the world press win well it's the second prize but come on it's world press so <laughs> must have been quite quite nice what um i was uh, i knew the results were going to be announced at i think it was 2 p.m and in, in my time and i didn't even look mm. i never entertained the idea that i would win and so I was on a family day in Yaffa, which is by the sea, and uh, I had an, a newborn, and uh, 
I think I was literally changing a shit-filled nappy <laughs> when my friend, one of my best friends, Laura Bushnock, also a photographer, also in the Rawia collective, uh, called me and, and said, actually, I shouldn't say it because there's so many Arabic speakers. She, she, she screamed a sort of a, a, a funny, uh, foul Arabic word and said, uh, and I won't say the word, you won, uh, you won second place in daily life. Huh. And I just started laughing hysterically. And then I started crying. And then I, I think I had this, this, this shit-filled diaper. I was just kind of waving it in my hand. My husband took it away from me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how I discovered. Nice. Yeah, Rewaya, tell me about that. That's a, um, an organization that you, I think, started. I was one of the founding members. Right. It was me. At the time, uh, the founding members were Nusha Tavakian, Dalia Khamisi, me, Laura Bushnak, and Tamar Abdelhadi. Um, and since then, we've lost to, actually, and then later on, we invited Bushra, an amazing Yemeni photographer, but for personal reasons, she left. And so we've added, uh, then we added Miriam Abdelaziz after the Egyptian revolution. And most recently, our first new member in years, we brought on uh, Tasneem Al-Sultan, a fabulous shooter out of uh, Saudi. Mm. So, and the intention, and the intention was what to to get together a, um, Middle Eastern women, or you know, what was the the kind of how did it all it's, begin? It's funny because there was a sort of it was a, a cynicism and a um, dissatisfaction with misrepresentations, but it was also the sort of like we were sort of cynically using the oriental fetish of women in media in the Middle East because the first question that individually we get and certainly now more than ever collectively is, oh, is it hard being a woman, you know, photographing in the Middle East? You know, and a lot of assumptions. And so we were sort of playing. We were like, okay, if we band together, it's going to be it's going to be sexy. It's going to get a lot of attention and maybe we'll be able to get more assignments and get, mm. and you know, collectively push our work and push uh, you know push this approach forward so we sort of played on this sort of oriental fetish of, of what is an Arab woman and uh, we have a debate actually you're the first person I'm saying this to publicly we're debating right now uh, whether we should invite um, men okay right. and Interesting. He, he will have to be a feminist if we if we bring him on but yeah. actually we I think not just our group, but in general, like Susan Micellis, who I, I worship. I mean, everyone is sort of tired of the moniker woman photographer. It's rather mm. insulting. So mm. we're going to, so we would play, we would change it from uh, Rawi is male storyteller, Rawiya is female. So we would, ch we would do a play on words and put Rawi and then put ya in a parenthesis. So okay. we have to vote, they have to, but, but yeah, we're, we may be changing approach. Mm. You had a thing in The Guardian quite recently. I think it might have gone a bit pear shaped, did it? Well, I was surprised because The Guardian had covered my work multiple times. Uh, the big picture, you know, that segment yeah, they'd done. Yeah. And I love The Guardian. They, they are, that is my go-to paper for the UK. And, um, you know, they ended up doing what I would say is sort of, a sort of daily mail <laughs> approach mm. of very... Uh, cheap i have to say initially the way it was it was it was uh it was titled initially pleasure seekers of pal of the occupied territories mm. and they changed the title now in the piece but if you if you see the link it still says that but when you click on it now it's been re rectified thank god oh, what does it say now um god i i uh, literally read it and jumped on the plane so right. i did but but what it said was much more yeah <laughs> um, it, was a, it seemed a bizarre choice of 
of or headline. It was surfing in Gaza, pleasure seekers of the occupied territories. And I was like, what is this? So from the beginning, before I even got into the piece, I had horror. Mm. <laughs> and well, this is your and this is your kind of uh, specialist subject as well, isn't it? It's kind of uh, you know right up your street. I, kind of- I yeah. And then so you got into it, and then literally the worst part was my quote had been completely altered. Uh, I said I I was basically I was critiquing how journalists don't put enough context when they're telling the Israel-Palestine story. They don't discuss enough the limited mobility, the checkpoints, the, the sort of Kafka military reality. They don't talk about it. And they twisted it and said she's tired of the focus being on checkpoints and, 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 which is not the focus. And I was just... And the thing is, is digital media is forever. I was horrified. The thought that those those words, which is something that I would never say, mm. but that, that it would be online forever, horrified me. Uh, and I am very careful because, as I mentioned earlier, you have to be when covering. You don't. So I uh, contacted them initially, and it was a Sunday, to be fair, but I didn't hear. So I'm just uh, completely just... Mm. livid and there was no response and then midday into the next day there was no response and then the bureau chief uh in in israel in palestine uh peter beaumont i love him i love his writing he's one of the most balanced photographers i've seen there contacted me and was just like what the what the f what the, what, what what is that headline what, what is this and i was like help me and i don't think that they were ignoring me but i think it was just kind of like not on there but anyway shortly after he contacted it was uh uh, they'd sent a nice email. They 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 said we we apologize. We put a you know we've corrected at the bottom. We've changed the the quote back to what it was. Okay, so. okay. So they did at least put their hands up and and admit to having screwed up. They, you know what? They did the right thing, and it mm. was the next day. So, but it's kind of it just shows you how easy it is. You know, you take something a little bit out of context, or you kind of and obviously the piece had been had been subbed. In fact, I think the the, the writer um, um, put her original version up on her her side personal which I, website yeah which i which i read and i can see why they subbed it i mean it was it was you know it, it, it needed to be done as it were in terms of the guardian's uh style, you know, style and all that but um yeah oh, that's interesting that you had that experience as someone who's ironically of, it, right before coming to soas where i was ready yeah. to face an irate you know the soas uh, student body it was i was prepared for a lot of irate students and i was like oh god mm, yeah. <laughs> but luckily that's been fixed good yeah, how are you how are you managing to juggle motherhood with the demands of you know being a jobbing photographer? How's that how's that project been going for you? It's not easy. I mm. think uh, I'm I'm assuming also equally for 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 fathers involved fathers. I think it's uh, yeah, absolutely no. And every time not, I ask this question, I have to sort of make, make my apologies because I'm. Uh, yeah no i i I understand why well that's the thing is i know that the politically correct thing now is to say well why would you would you ask a man that but actually to be and actually yes i would (laughs) that's the thing you would and the thing is is to be frank absolutely it is the hardest thing i have in my i I can't i can't lie it's very difficult yeah and i'm a kind of i'm it's become a bit of a habit that i ask that question um of of you know women the women photographers that i've interviewed who are in in the same position of you with young kids and i just finished reading Lindsay adario's book and you know she's she talks about it as well and and hopefully she's going to chat with me at some point but um yeah yeah it's an obvious thing to ask um because you know yeah this is it's tricky for everyone but um Inevitably, there's a certain amount of traveling involved in that kind of thing. Um, have you sort of altered your expectations or your or your plans or your kind of way of doing things? Ironically, 
Occupy Pleasures itself came about because I also needed to do a project close to home. And that ended up being the most successful project that I've done. But now I'm constantly having to 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 find long term projects that will not involve so much travel. Mm. And it on one on one hand it can be frustrating because when you feel that you have to tell a story in a certain place, that can and also there's a natural fatigue to mm. and I've already found an out of the box way once to approach the story. It's like there's there's just a natural fatigue to telling the story in the same place. I think it's actually healthy to challenge yourself and put you yourself as a storyteller into a new place and so that's frustrating I have to stay close to home I have to turn down a lot of assignments there's a lot of stress there's a lot of I I constantly I'm sort of a naturally hyper person already and I just I'm just constantly I I think I drink like seven or eight cups of coffee a day to function I'm balancing uh, and and actually I I remember thinking I was gonna get easier when they're older but no swim classes etc etc so literally so you got two two i've got a four and a half year old and a two and a half year old right. and to be honest i'm working uh maybe at 20 percent capacity of my the work that i would like to do thank god the financial uh onus is not on me mm. uh, i don't make a lot of money especially especially working at only 20 30 percent capacity so really at this point i i'm focusing mm. a lot more on the children and then uh, and then you know the, the, the travels like coming here from here i'm going to denmark for an exhibit with my syria syria work like it's I have to try to pan it so that I'm gone max five days. Like I just was in New York a few weeks ago. I flew to New York for three days. Mm. Like that's insane to cross the Atlantic for three yeah. days. But that's just, I tried, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm juggling, I'm trying to make it work. Yeah, of course. But as part of you enjoy that kind of crazy dashing around, is something quite nice about it as well? <sighs> there is and there isn't because I like, like you don't have time to go on gut. You're going yeah. instead... I don't like when you feel frantic on a story where you, and that's, you don't get what I call mojo. You don't have your mojo moment when you, like when you're on assignment and you have two hours and you're like, oh crap, I've got to get the shot. You know, that I don't like when you're doing a slow project, what should be, you know, slow, slow photograph, slow photography, slow, you know, and instead of just letting a sort of natural gut instinct follow, you're just sort of in that frantic because then you alter the energy of what you're going to get. Yeah, of course. And that's why people put so much store on their, on their own long-term personal stuff, I think, because it is such a contrast, you know, to have a bit of time to, you know, let it kind of percolate. But I don't get to let it percolate. Now my, my slow shooting, my personal projects involve, I have 10 hours here. I have, if I'm lucky, three days in a row is like yeah. God's gift. So it's going to be that way for a while. Mm. But Yeah, and I think you've kind of already alluded to the fact that, that you know, Occupy Pleasures is the... In a way, you can make a virtue out of those restrictions because because actually, you know, there's a certain amount of fate involved. And so, you know, if you have to shoot, you know, in where you are and you can't sort of swan about, then then that doesn't mean to say that you can't, you know, produce a really Good crack, cracking story, yeah. Actually, when my daughter was an infant, I used to bring her with me to refugee camps, different places, and it would be funny because I'd have someone hold her for a second, I'd turn around, she'd be gone, and then like, oh, crap. And then four families down, they were holding her. Like, it's a really amazing, like in the Middle East, uh, actually it's the same in Israeli society, babies are very, it's, you know, they're, they're running free in a restaurant, people don't yell, but... Then she became unwieldy, but I just brought my four and a half year old on an assignment recently with me for the mm. first time in a long time. Then it, it, it involves walking and searching and going under shrubs and looking, uh, sort of inverse archaeology, a uh, phrase I love from Tim McIntosh Smith's uh, um, Travels with a Tangerine. And it was fun. And I was like, okay, okay. Mm. I can. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. Well, it's great talking to you. Thank you so much. 
Um, nice to meet you. And yeah, you've, you've, you've got such a flying visit. You're in London for like t- two days or something. So you've got a lot of stuff to um, go and do. So I'll let you go and do it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for inviting me. I love I love your podcast. I love your intuitive questions. And uh, yeah, so basically I have uh, one free day to just... I plan on walking, 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 going into pubs, taking the piss, and going and seeing some just amazing, amazing photography, I'm hoping. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thanks, Tanya. Thank you. Thank you.